Hello and welcome. I'm David Beard, contributing editor for Daily Coast Elections. The Down Ballot is a weekly podcast dedicated to the many elections that take place below the presidency from Senate to City Council. Please subscribe to The Down Ballot on Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review. Unfortunately, David Neer was not able to join us this week, but Daily Coast Elections editor Jeff Singer will be joining me as we go through our weekly hits. The two of us are going to talk about Michigan's 8th District, which is newly open thanks to Dan Kildee's retirement, and now one of the most competitive seats in the country. We'll also talk about new abortion rights measures that are going to be hopefully on the ballot in Montana and Nebraska next year. We'll talk about upcoming state house special elections in Michigan, Pennsylvania, as well as a recent spate of rulings on some gerrymandered maps across the country. Then after the break, Tom Bonnier from Target Smart will be joining me to break down all the data we've gotten from the 2022 and 2023 elections and what it all means for 2024. So we've got a great show, lots of information. So let's dive right in. So despite the Thanksgiving break, there's still been a fair amount of political news going around in the past couple of weeks. And we want to start off in the House where there's been a string of House retirements. Now, we're not going to talk about every one. Most of them are in safe seats. So there's just going to be a new Democrat or a new Republican replacing the old one. But we do want to focus in on one very competitive seat, and that's Michigan's 8th District. Yeah, exactly. This is about as competitive as it gets. This seat, it's located in Flint in the area known as the Tri-Cities, very evenly divided turf. Joe Biden won it 50 to 48 percent. Doesn't get much closer. And Republicans last year, they spent millions hoping to flip the seat. Didn't happen. Dan Kildee won by a surprisingly comfortable 53 to 43 percent margin. But Kildee isn't going to be there to defend it anymore. First time in a long time where the Kildee family won't be running here. Yeah, I mean, the the Kildee family is an institution in Michigan. They've had a few of these. Of course, the Levins represented Michigan for a long time, either the congressional level or the Senate level. The Dingles continue to represent Michigan, have for close to 100 years, I think. Um, but the Kildees, they also have a long streak. Dan Kildee's uncle originally represented the area in Congress from 1977 until 2012, when he decided not to run for re-election. Dan Kildee, his nephew, ran, won the seat. He had previously been on the Flint Board of Education, on the Genesee County Board of Commissioners. So he had a long elective history of his own. It wasn't purely a nepotism run, though I'm sure the Kildee name helped. And he's been able to hold that seat pretty comfortably, even as you mentioned last year, when it became a lot more competitive, when the Republicans spent a lot of money against him, he was still able to win 53-43. So we are, I think, going to lose something there now that we don't have his name and his really strong brand in this area. But I expect we'll see a lot of Democrats and a lot of Republicans look to win this seat. Yeah, In fact, there's already one Democrat who's running, State Board of Education President Pamela Pugh. She was running for Senate, wasn't getting traction. This week, she announced she's going to run for this seat. But Pugh's probably not going to scare anyone off. Her Senate run really raised very little money. She ended September with about $9,000. She can use that for House, but that's not going to intimidate anyone. 
Yeah, that that gets you like a day's worth of a congressional campaign, $9,000 compared to what you actually need to raise. And we'll have to see, was the issue with raising money, the fact that so much of the establishment had rallied around uh, Alyssa Slotkin, who was also running for the Senate seat, or was it actually a problem with Pew being able to raise money? Because now I think there'll be a lot more openness around establishment organizations, you know, traditional donors to to give her money now that there's not a clear front runner where she's running, but she's still going to have to be able to to prove to have that fundraising skill. There have been, you know, some other names that have been bandied about. Flint Mayor Sheldon Neely has said that he's going to launch an exploratory committee. And Mitchell Rivard, who serves as chief of staff to Dan Kildee, has also said he's considering running to replace his boss in this swing seat. Now, Neely is, you know, obviously the mayor of Flint. Pew is from the Saginaw area. So we've got sort of three different sort of power bases here. And obviously Rivard has a lot of DC connections. So it's sort of DC versus Flint versus Saginaw. If all of these folks run, there could also of course be other candidates running. And we expect there'll be, you know, at least one, possibly more decent Republicans running as well to to give them a chance at this seat. Yeah, there are two Republicans running. One of them is very much not decent though. <laughs> um, Paul Jung, he was... The nominee last year against Kildee, he was the one on the other side of that 53 to 43% drubbing. Democrats made sure to emphasize he has weak connections to this area. And that was a pretty good argument. There are other candidates, though. Police officer Martin Blank, he served in the Army, was decorated, has a good resume, but he ran twice to the legislature in the last few cycles and didn't come close to winning either primary. So national Republicans reportedly like him, but... Local voters so far haven't. And pretty likely more Republicans are looking at the seat. There have been reports of some names out there. No one's said anything yet, but there's a long while to go. This is going to be a big priority for both parties. We're going to see a lot of action here. Yeah, we'll definitely be revisiting this district, I think, a number of times between now and next November. I think it could definitely be a majority maker in the end to determine you know, which party controls the House in 2025. Now, another topic, obviously, that we've covered a ton on the down ballot is abortion rights measures. We've got some more of those coming. First of all, in Montana, Reproductive rights advocates have announced plans to place a constitutional amendment safeguarding the right to an abortion on the ballot next year in Montana. Montana, of course, has become a bit of an oasis for many folks seeking abortion care in the Western United States. A lot of the states around Montana have obviously severely banned abortion or made it very, very limited and hard to get. Montana, thanks to a previous state Supreme Court ruling, has protected abortion rights in that state. But of course, as we've seen, rights from a state Supreme Court can change as the makeup of that state Supreme Court changes. So that is a big reason why these advocates are looking to put this measure onto the ballot to get this you know, written into the Constitution very explicitly so that any future state Supreme Courts in Montana won't be able to, you know, decide, oh, that ruling was wrong. And now actually you can ban abortion in Montana. Sorry about that. You know, don't worry about stare decisis. We're just going to go ahead and let you do whatever you want. So this is the way to make sure that Montana can protect reproductive rights, you know, for the foreseeable future. Yeah, exactly. And Nebraska is also looking to do that, although the situation there is very different. The Republicans recently just passed a very restrictive ban on abortion in the state. 
activists are looking to overturn that with a constitutional amendment. But getting constitutional amendments before voters, never an easy job. Advocates need to gather signatures from about 10% of registered voters. That's about 125,000 people, but there's a little bit of a catch. The exact requirements aren't actually going to be known until July 5th, which is the filing deadline. So you always want to gather a lot more signatures than you need because some of them are inevitably going to be disqualified. And this makes the target a little more hard to say, but 125,000 is about what they're going for. There are geographic requirements as well. They need to gather signatures from 5% of registered voters in at least two-fifths of the state's 93 counties. And Nebraska, like many states, has progressives packed into a few large counties and conservatives spread out all over the place. So to hit these targets, you have to go into some very, very red turf. That's not necessarily a disqualifier. Progressives in Ohio had to do the same thing to get their abortion rights amendment on the ballot, and they very much did, but does require some extra work. Yeah, I, I think they'll be able to do that, but certainly that's a lot more difficult than being able to collect all of your signatures from a couple of very populous counties, both in terms of the political makeup, but also just the fact that people are a lot closer together. So you can just be on a street corner or someplace populous and get a whole bunch of signatures. Anybody who's you know lived in a rural county knows it's not quite so easy to collect a whole bunch of signatures just in one place when there's so few people and they're so spread out. The same is true in Montana. They'll have to collect 60,000 signatures in Montana. That's equivalent to 10% of the vote in the most recent election for governor. And 10% of those have to come from at least 40 of the 100 districts in the state house. So there's some geographic requirements there as well. But that's a smaller number than 125. The states are around the same size. So I think the Montana one will probably have a little bit of an easier time. But I think there's a good chance that we'll see both of these on the ballots next year. And as we've seen, these have been very successful, you know, sort of across the gamut of from blue states to red states. Yeah, exactly. And Montana especially long had a libertarian streak. Candidates who support abortion rights like Senator John Tester, they've persevered. Montana's probably the better bet if both of them make it to the ballot box. But like you said, even states like Ohio that have gone quite far to the right Abortion rights are very popular there. Yeah, and of course, I'm sure John Tester won't mind sharing the ballot with this amendment, particularly if, as expected, it passes comfortably. I think he will definitely be using that to drive some voters to the polls, try to get people to go out, you know, protect abortion rights by voting for this and sending John Tester back to the Senate to protect abortion rights federally. So I definitely think there will be some synergy there to, you know, his benefit. But we have some more immediate races in front of us because it's going to be special election time in two key states, Michigan and Pennsylvania. Beard, last year, Democrats in both states unexpectedly won small but very important majorities in both the Michigan and Pennsylvania state houses. Democrats also won the Michigan Senate in a true shocker. But those majorities are so small that if anyone, say, resigns to, I don't know, take another elected office somewhere, you have to have a special where the entire chamber is basically on the line. And that's the case in Michigan, where two Democrats, Kevin Coleman of Westland and Lori Stone of Warren, they were elected mayor on November 7th of their respective towns. The Michigan State House drops from 56 to 54 Democratic majority to 54 to 54 tie. The Democratic Speaker says, we're still in control because the rules 
only require a power sharing agreement if there's an exact 55 to 55 tie. That's not what's happening here. But if Republicans snag one of those seats in the special elections, which are now set for April 16th, that's a different story. And if somehow they manage to win them both, they have the speaker's gavel back. The good news is it's not likely to happen in either seat. Coleman's seat is the more competitive of the two, but only just. Joe Biden won 59% of the vote here. Stone's seat, even more Democratic. Biden won 64%. But April 16th, not a date many people are likely to go to the polls normally. Unexpected things can happen, especially when the stakes are this high. Yeah, and I think we've seen the Michigan state legislature pass a ton of really great legislation throughout 2023. And these seats are going to be really important in order to allow them to continue passing great legislation throughout 2024. I think we'll see a good amount of attention paid to these races. There will be investment on both sides, but I think particularly the Democrats are going to want to maintain this majority and they will be spending you know, whatever they need to to feel comfortable that they're going to do so. As you mentioned, these are scheduled for April 16th. The Pennsylvania one, which you're going to talk about, hasn't been scheduled yet, is my understanding. So we're still waiting a little bit on that one, right? Yeah, exactly. The Democratic state representative, John Galloway, he won a local judgeship in Bucks County outside of Philadelphia. He's going to resign on December 15th. There'll be a special, but they haven't scheduled it yet. Probably January, February. And it's appropriate that we're talking about Puxitani Phil's home state because <laughs> this is going to be the fourth time in the space of a year where special elections are going to decide control of the Pennsylvania State House of Representatives a 203-member chamber where Democrats have a one-seat majority. Democrats have successfully defended now five seats across three election nights, easily winning all of them, and hoping to do so again in Galloway's seat. Biden won 55% of the vote here, but Bucks County, as everyone knows, it's an area that's pretty unpredictable. Republicans often do well down the ballot, and Special election turnout, it's been good for Democrats overall, but it's unpredictable. This is one where Democrats are going to be keeping watch, don't want any surprises. We'll see if Republicans try to take advantage of anything. And I should note, just like in Michigan, Democrats are going to keep the speaker's gavel for now. They passed a rule saying the party in control of the chamber is the one that won the most seats in the last election, unless the math changes with special elections or party switches. So. For now, that means tied chamber, Democrats win. But if Republicans pick this one up, they're in control. Yeah, and I think this one, the Republicans will definitely be throwing the kitchen sink out a little bit. I think it's one I would guess they think they can win. As you mentioned, Biden only won this seat with 55% of the vote. That's lower than either of the two Michigan open seats. It's definitely got some more Republican tendencies down ballot. We saw in Virginia that despite having some districts that Biden won by single digits, they're often a lot more Republican down ballot. And I think this district has, shares some similarities to those districts we saw in Virginia. And so this one's probably going to be you know, really competitive. We're still waiting, like we said, for the date for the candidates. So it's still a little up in the air, but it's definitely one that we'll be paying a lot of attention to as we get some more definitive information and as the, the election becomes closer. Yeah. And I'll just note, there is one key difference between Michigan and Pennsylvania special elections. In Michigan, there's going to be a primary in both these seats in January, regular party primary. Pennsylvania, no primary for special elections. 
the parties pick their nominees. So those things can also be unpredictable, but it probably means we won't have some case in New Hampshire where, oh, I don't know, the Republicans nominate a guy who just goes on about Moloch. Uh, no, no Moloch for 2024. It's, it's a tragedy. Um, hopefully, hopefully he'll pop up somewhere else. So we'll see. One last topic we wanted to touch on. There's been a number of gerrymandering rulings um, in the past couple of weeks, largely upholding some gerrymanders, unfortunately. Um, We've seen the New Hampshire State Supreme Court uphold the Republican gerrymanders of the State Senate and the Executive Council. We've seen the Ohio Supreme Court uphold the Republican gerrymanders of the state legislature there after, of course, the composition of that court changed when a more moderate, willing to enforce the gerrymandering laws Republican was replaced with a more down-the-line conservative Republican in Ohio. We also saw the New Mexico Supreme Court uphold a Democratic gerrymander of the congressional seats in New Mexico, basically saying it's a relatively mild gerrymander. It doesn't do anything wild, and so it didn't rise to the level of something that they would strike down, that they did reserve the right to to find something strike downable in a, in a future map. But in a couple of cases, either a map has been or very well could be struck down. In North Dakota, a federal court struck down the legislative maps that the Republicans enacted after the 2020 census. They ruled that the map violated the Voting Rights Act by diluting the voting power of Native Americans. Now there's a good chance there'll be an appeal in that case. So it remains to be seen if we'll actually get new maps for 2024 or not. And then in Wisconsin, importantly, the Supreme Court heard a case about the state legislative maps in Wisconsin. And it seemed from the hearing that the four liberal justices on the court are ready to strike down the state legislative maps over the fact that more than 70 of the districts are non-contiguous. They have parts that don't touch each other. There's a long, complicated history about that in those districts and towns in Wisconsin that I'm not going to get into. But the important thing is that these heavily, heavily gerrymandered maps are likely going to be struck down. And then it remains to be seen what the Supreme Court orders in terms of a resolution there. But we will, at the very least, be getting new maps in Wisconsin and hopefully fairer maps. Yeah, that would be remarkable. Democrats have really been locked out in the swing state for a long time. Republicans swept both chambers in 2010. They passed gerrymanders. And while Democrats briefly got the state Senate back in 2012 in the summer because of recall elections, Republicans took it back right afterwards. And just when a party has such dominant control of the legislature in such a swing state as Wisconsin, you know something's wrong. Yeah, absolutely. So that's definitely something we'll be keeping a close eye on in the weeks to come. Jeff, thank you so much for stepping in and joining me for the Weekly Hits this week. It was great to be here. And in the off chance that anyone is listening who's a Democratic House member who's thinking of retiring, please announce your retirement early in the day and don't announce the day that everyone else is announcing. (laughs) Yes, yes. Please think of Jeff when you retire from your congressional seat. It's important. Yes. (laughs) Now, uh, stick with us. We've got an interview with Tom Bonnier, the CEO of the Terra Group and a senior advisor at the Democratic data firm TargetSmart. So we'll be back right after the break. (laughs) 
Joining us today is Tom Bonnier, the CEO of the Terra Group and a senior advisor at TargetSmart, a democratic data firm. Tom, welcome back to the pod. It's great to be back. So 2023, we just had a set of off-year elections, obviously not the same scale of a midterm or, of course, a presidential election, but a good number of elections you know, took place on November 7th. What were sort of your broad takeaways from the results that we saw and, and the data that you've since you know, been able to collect on the elections we saw on November 7th? At the, at the broadest possible level, you know, the most obvious takeaway was it was generally a good night for Democrats. And I'll expand on that a little bit in terms of the data. I think there was an open question going into this election. We know what we experienced in 2022. But I think one of the biggest questions was to what extent the impact that we saw, especially of the Dobbs decision, but generally this rejection of Republican extremism, to what extent that that had survived the intervening year. Some people theorized that, well, the Dobbs decision, um, it might fade in impact over over time, which is, it sounds silly just saying those words, but in reality, yeah. like there are many very credible people theorizing that, that, well, people would just get used to it, which is, again, kind of insane. But, um, you know, at a deeper level, a question of will it motivate and mobilize voters? I think the other big question that I was looking at was, you know, we had this dichotomy that we've talked about in the past in prior elections and going back to 2022, where the Dobbs decision and this notion of Republican extremism did have a significant and substantial impact in some states. And then other states, it was like it just didn't exist, right? It was like the red wave that was expected came in those states. So, you know, I think one of the challenges for Democrats and progressives coming into the 2023 elections was can they transfer what we've been seeing in states where abortion was literally on the ballot to states where it was more figuratively on the ballot? And so Virginia ended up being, in a way, the perfect test of that because you had both sides kind of agreeing that this was going to be about abortion rights, which surprised me a little bit, the extent to which the Republican governor of Virginia, um, Glenn Youngkin, really leaned into the issue. He didn't try to shy away from it. In fact, that was really his closing argument was mm-hmm. this is this is about abortion rights and his 15-week ban. I mean, I really think he thought he had cracked the code. This would put him, you know, at the front of the field in terms of the sort of everyone but Trump um field, the race to be who's the heir apparent or or maybe even who's the person who could take him on. And so uh, yeah, uh, to the extent that it was a test of that, my takeaway is it was a step forward in terms of showing that abortion rights can mobilize and motivate and persuade voters, even when it's not on the ballot. Yeah, and I think a big takeaway that I think aligns with that is that it feels like if you took the 2022 results and you basically fast forwarded 365 days with almost nothing intervening and ran another election, it seems very close to what we saw in 2023. Yes. It almost seems like there was almost nothing that has happened since the Dobbs decision that sort of changed where we were, where clearly before the Dobbs decision, Dems were not in a great place. After the Dobbs decision, that sort of got reset. We saw what happened in the second half of 2022. Really, I don't really feel like anything has really changed where we are 
since the DOPS decision and the election results then pretty much showed that. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. You know, it's sometimes hard in analyzing these elections and really internalizing them and, and, and sort of figuring out what they mean, which is important because it has a bearing on how we approach future elections, especially in this case, the 2024 elections. And given that there was an argument in the lead up to 2022, like are Democrats talking about abortion too much? Are they talking about Republican extremism too much? Do they need to talk about the economy and crime more? Um, and then obviously what happened happens. We know that the, the fact was that they were talking about all those issues pretty effectively in a lot mm-hmm. of places. And so to your point, yes, it was like this continuation. But when I say you have to view these elections in context, it's almost like grading on a curve, meaning we have a tendency, well, I say we, but y- you know, the, the punditry, the media, especially the media, <laughs> um, have this tendency to want to put every election into one box or the other box. This was a good night for Democrats, bad night for Democrats. You know, and sometimes it's both. Um, and in this election, there were some people afterwards who were saying, you know, after the initial day or two where it was like, oh, this is really good for Democrats. I think people started looking for reasons to say why maybe it wasn't as good for Democrats. And we saw New York Times say that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in a day or two after that, you know, Democrats had a good night. Here's why it's still bad for Democrats in 2024. Something to that effect. And the reality is when I say you have to grade an election on a curve, there are so many factors that have an impact. And so to the extent that we want to be able to distill the impact of the Dobbs decision and Republican extremism on this specific election, we have to consider what the election would have looked like if those issues didn't exist. And of course, that's impossible. We can't you know, run this election in a parallel universe where the Dobbs decision never happened. But people love to talk about the fundamentals in politics, meaning what's the general environment? What's the economy like? What's people's perception of the economy like? What's inflation like? The president's approval ratings. And all we heard in the run-up to 2022 was the fundamentals were bad for Democrats, which was true. And, you know, similarly, the economy's gotten a lot better. We've got some great uh, economic news, even just recently, uh, in terms of growth of the economy. But people's perception of the economy is still not good. The president's approval ratings are still not great. That hasn't changed either, to your point, in terms of fast forwarding. So grading on that curve, the expectation would have been Republicans would do quite well in places like Kentucky and Virginia and Mississippi. Mississippi didn't get as much attention, the governor's race there, partially because I think the expectations got set a little bit too high because Democrats were spending a decent amount of money. In the end, that race was decided by just over three points when a Mm -hmm. Republican incumbent governor Remember how good things have been for incumbents uh, in the last two years in terms of the elections we've had. Uh, To win by just over three points in Mississippi is not a good sign for Republicans. So grading on that curve, yeah, Democrats had a much better night than they would have without putting um, the issues of Republican extremism and abortion rights in the forefront. Yeah. And of course, the media loves to take wins and losses above anything else when the fact that getting 47, 48 percent in Mississippi is a really great job for a Democrat, even if you ultimately lose overperforming by that much is a really impressive sign nonetheless. Yeah, absolutely. I, I Again, I think it, it, it bears more attention, you know, um, the, the, the dynamic there, what 
that campaign was able to put together, you know, because the other question that's been going in is the question about um, are Democrats losing core components of their constituency? And when you look at the Mississippi results and you look at the strong turnout, especially among black voters and the incredibly strong performance, you know, again, it's one election. Um, but I, I'll take election results over polls any day. Yeah, and I, that's something I wanted to ask you about. So let's go ahead and lead into that. Obviously, here at the down ballot, we don't spend a lot of time on the presidential election, but sometimes you can't help but dip your toe in a little bit because that's all you know. Sort of everyone else more broadly wants to talk about. Obviously, there have been a lot of polls around you know Biden and Trump next year, and there's been a lot of analysis around this issue around voters of color and young voters, and the fact that some of these polls are showing. Biden doing significantly worse than he did in 2020 um, with young voters and, and voters of color. Did we see any evidence of that coming through in any of the election results that we've seen in 2023 that would sort of lead us to believe that there's a broader, you know, departure from the Democratic Party that would actually back up these polls? We didn't. I mean, short answer is we didn't. It, it feels, and I don't want to discount it entirely, but it does feel a little bit like 2022, where it was like, we're waiting for the red wave. Where are the signs of it? We, we know what red waves look like. We know what the lead up to red wave elections look like. And we weren't seeing any of those signs in place. And this is sort of, I, I guess, just maybe the beginnings of that, where people are looking forward to 2024. And there are a lot of these polls that are suggesting that younger voters, voters of color are not just edging away from President Biden, but I, I mean, poll after poll after poll showing in some cases, President Biden losing among younger voters, which is just not plausible in some cases with very narrow margins. And so when you have that many polls showing something similar, it bears paying attention but it's just one element. It's one blip on our radar when we have to be calibrating to other data points too, especially election results. You would expect if Democrats generically, because a lot of Republicans have now been crowing about this supposed um, multi-ethnic, multicultural, working class emerging majority you know, that, that, that they're winning over uh, voters of color, younger voters, because they're actually much more culturally conservative and they're with us. And if that were true, you would expect to see it in places like Mississippi. You would expect to see it in Virginia with, you know, a, a incumbent Republican governor who has molded himself to appear as a moderate, even though um, his agenda suggests otherwise. And you just didn't see it. You saw strong performance from voters of color for Democratic candidates. Kentucky, you know, it's, let's not forget that in terms of winning that governor's race in Kentucky with very strong African-American turnout and performance. So I, it's worth noting, though, that those who would argue that this is something that is happening here or is going to happen, they say that, well, it's actually the lower propensity, as they say, meaning those who are less likely to vote in these lower turnout elections, it's those voters who are more problematic for President Biden. So maybe that, 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 that could be true. You know, to me, it's more likely that those voters at this point are just not very engaged. I mean, let's face it, most Americans are not very engaged in the 2024 elections right now, mm -hmm. and they won't be for a long time. 
And that's probably healthy. I wish some days I could be like that. Um, but <laughs> if they're not very engaged, but you're asking them a year out who they're going to vote for, well, the, the least engaged are more likely to answer those questions just a little bit differently with a little bit of a different framework. Yeah. Yeah, to, to go back to that multi-ethnic Republican majority, I've definitely seen people pushing that whole concept on Twitter. And I think it's putting the cart way before the horse. Like, let's have one election where you get like 25% of the black vote before you've declared your, you know, multi-ethnic working class party in effect. Um, it seems, it seems a little ridiculous. It, it's wild. I mean, there, there's literally, and this is not, uh, call someone out individually, but there's literally a book written about this now yeah. that came out recently. Like, by, by, I'll, I'll name him because it's not cool to, me, to, to mention someone then that got into it. Patrick Ruffini, who was a very smart Republican analyst. Um, and, and I generally respect his, his analysis. Um, but you know, books are weird things, I guess. Right. Yeah. <laughs> by the time and you pitch it and then actually write it, things can have changed. Um, you know, that just has happened with Reed Teixeira's book that just came out <laughs> So while I'm calling out people who wrote books. Uh, so, yeah, you're right. Like, let, let's see some elections. Yes, re- Donald Trump did do a little bit better with voters of color in 2020 than he did in 2016. But we're talking about, you know, we, we're certainly well aware of what happened with Latino voters in some communities where you saw a bigger swing with African-American voters, you know, we're talking about maybe a point or two. Yeah. Now, I I also want to talk about sort of the concept of campaigns. I think that's also driving this a lot. Obviously, you know, you've worked on a ton of campaigns, you know, seeing that side of things. And I think what people often forget is that where people start is often not where they finish, particularly because so many of us on Twitter probably listening to this podcast, you know, as you said, they're very engaged. They know all about 2024. They know exactly who they're going to vote for passionately. And a lot of people aren't like that. And the course of a campaign, you know, engages voters, it persuades voters, it talks to voters, you know, and I assume, you know, being on the inside of these campaigns, you can see that happen in polling and and as the work goes on. Yeah. I mean, it's something that I think we are all sort of forgetting in a way that campaigns exist for a reason. Um, and the good campaigns actually do have an impact. I mean, every campaign has an impact one way or another. (laughs) Um, And so to the extent that some of these polls show potential vulnerabilities for the president or for Democrats in general, well, that that is why campaigns exist. I think it's also just worth noting that we're existing in an incredibly dynamic environment right now. Um, You know, we talk about the polarization and sure, the polarization exists, but just in terms of what is going on in the world uh, and, the, and the impact that's having on these polls also needs to be taken into account. And it's not to say that these elements, when you think about two wars going on, two major wars going on in the world right now, um, you know, again, economic uncertainty, that sort of thing, they're going to have an impact. The polls are certainly picking that up, but you know, I think one of the favorite things that a lot of people like to say when they're reporting on these polls is, well, if the election were held today, you know, that's the framework now is if the election were held today, Donald Trump would win or he'd be considered the favorite. Well, it's a counterfactual that really betrays the logic of the poll itself in that you can't possibly simulate in a poll the election happening today. 
It's just, it's, it's not happening today. And the stakes that I internalize when I answer a question about for whom I'm voting are going to be very different a year out um, than they will be next year. And to your point, the campaigns themselves are going to have a huge bearing on how people think about their vote choices, think about the stakes. And, you know, beyond the campaigns, it's just all the things that we know that will be transpiring over the next year, including multiple trials with Donald Trump, you know, having been indicted for several dozen felonies. Yeah, absolutely. We have we have no idea where that's going and we will continue to see how that unfolds, you know, throughout the, the next 11 months. But I want to turn to a different topic, one that obviously you've done a ton of work on, and that is, you know, early voting data. It's something that is in the lead up to an election now obsessed over and sort of poo-pooed in equal measure. People both look at it, you know, multiple times a day and then they're like, oh, well, don't look at early voting data. It doesn't tell you anything at the same time. Sometimes they're the same people doing it at the same time. But obviously, I think it's something that has evolved as, you know, more and more data becomes available as more states do this in a bigger way in terms of people voting early. How have you seen both looking back at, you know, 2022, now that, you know, all of the possible data has come in and 2023 to the degree that there was, you know, that sort of data around early voting and mail voting, you know, how useful has it been in terms of, you know, looking at elections ahead of time? Do you feel like sort of after election day, you were like, oh, I'm glad, you know, we had all this information ahead of election day. What's sort of the state of affairs with, with that information? Yeah, there's really two layers of analysis that I think are important with early vote. And this is something that we sort of learned painful lessons over the years uh, in terms of what sort of early vote analysis can be helpful and what can't. The first level is a strategic or tactical level. And that's less in the realm of really the second area, which is the, the predictive power of the early vote. Um, but it can't be discounted, meaning... You know, there's a common thread where people talk about the early vote and say, well, it's not really relevant because the Democrats, the Republicans, they're just, quote, cannibalizing their election day votes, Um, meaning the people who they're turning out early um, are people who would have turned out on election day had they not had the opportunity. They're what we call the higher propensity voters. They're people you look at their past vote history and they voted reliably in previous elections. And so that's true. And from a predictive element, I think that's something that does need to be taken into account. But there's a massive advantage if one party is just clearing the roles of their turnout targets early, weeks before election day, um, whether these are people who would have turned out anyway, by having a smaller universe to communicate with, the campaigns have a significant advantage. And that's something that Republicans had seeded almost entirely to Democrats up through last year's elections. Um, The second element, predictive um, ability, really speaks to the first point in a way. If you just look at the early vote and say, well, Democrats are winning by a ton, therefore Democrats are going to win by a ton. Well, it doesn't work that way. And so in 2022, what we were really looking for was some sort of asymmetry in intensity and turnout. And that you don't get that by looking at the overall early vote. What we do is we look at the low propensity voters, those who we generally might not have expected them to vote in this election or first time voters. And like I said before, 
we know what a red wave looks like. Red waves or blue waves, any sort of wave election happens not just with a persuasive advantage, but with a turnout advantage. So if the election was going to be a red wave election in 2022, you would expect to see, even among the early vote where Democrats have an advantage, you would expect to see it closer among these lower propensity, less likely um, voters. And we didn't see that except in places like Florida, New York, and California. So it was actually quite predictive of that dynamic. It's not predictive to the to the extent that you can look at it and confidently predict a winner. It's one data point that you're triangulating against. I will note 2023, I think my biggest takeaway was we heard how Republicans, especially in Virginia, were investing in early voting. Governor Yunkin, I forget what he called his program, um, but it was some sort of thing where it made it sound like it was like... Um, protecting the vote, something like that. It, that wasn't the actual uh, name for it that they used, but they said that they invested something like $5 million into getting their voters out early. And you could see the impact in the early vote result. And I will say in the lead up to elections, it made me nervous because the, the early vote was much more Republican than it was in 2022, 2021, 2020, which suggested that they were having some success. They clearly did have some success there. I think the elections wouldn't have been as close in Virginia, frankly, if the Republicans didn't invest and didn't have the successes they had. So we know, you know, both chambers, the outcomes were within the narrowest possible margins in terms of seat margin. And when you look at the closest seats, you know, you're only talking about a few thousand votes swinging one way or another. And we could have had Republicans in control with a trifecta there. And so I do think their early vote successes were a key component to that. That said, when we looked at the lower propensity voters, it was slightly less Republican at that point. So it did suggest that point. Okay, well, it's not that Republicans have a huge intensity advantage, but they have a tactical advantage in terms of their ability to turn out more of their voters before election day than they had in prior elections. Mm -hmm. And we did see, though Democrats, of course, took the House, held onto the Senate, you know, they only did each by one seat margin. And the following races, if you go to seat 52, 53, 54, and a seat 22 in the Senate, they were the really close races. Democrats, obviously the, the 21st and the 51st seat were close, but they weren't the closest races of the night. The closest races of the night were the ones, you know, right beyond there. That's a great and point. Republicans won those almost uniformly, really the ones that were one or two points um, you know, despite obviously still Democrats are happy to have taken the chambers, that's still a great victory. The the narrowness was really in their ability to hold on to those, you know, those few seats just beyond 51 and 21. Yeah, it's, a, it's excellent point. And again, I think it sort of speaks to part of their tactical acumen and, and how they approached this. When we looked at the early vote and you broke it down statewide, it didn't look that impressive. It looked much closer to the way it had looked in the last couple of elections. But when you limited the analysis just to the target districts, that's where you saw the advantage, meaning they were clearly being very tactical about where they were doing the early vote push. And it was effective. And yeah, it's a very good point. I mean, it, it, it easily could have resulted in much bigger Democratic margins than it did. Um, but I think because Republicans did a, a comparatively good job with getting their vote out, it ended up being as close as it could be. 
Now, one last topic I want to pick your brain on. It's something that uh, David and I talked about a couple of weeks ago in Ohio, and the fact that you know the abortion rights amendment passed comfortably here in November. It did very well in a lot of the suburban areas of Ohio, where Sherrod Brown, you know, will likely be looking to pick up votes that maybe he hasn't gotten, you know, in his past election victories to sort of counteract you know, democratic losses in the in the eastern part of the state. How does, you know, it actually work in terms of a data targeting firm to sort of take these election results and be like, oh, we've got new targets. That's something that like, you know, I sort of understand from a layman's perspective to be like, I know there's a bunch of voters out there. I know some of them voted for this amendment, even though they normally vote for Republicans. How do you actually go from that to actually being like, here's how you target these folks and try to build on that to get them to vote for Sherrod Brown next year. Yeah, it's actually, it's funny you asked this because I was having a conversation with uh, someone on our team just earlier today about specifically Ohio and this sort of element <laughs> and also throwing in the, uh, the, the cannabis amendment that was also on the ballot and ran mm-hmm. like just incrementally ahead of the abortion rights amendment. Um, you know, one of the first things you can do is actually just a precinct level analysis where you throw in those ballot initiatives, those ballot measures, and then you throw in previous election results in terms of Senator Brown's previous election. You look at the Trump race. You look at uh, J.D. Vance and his performances. And you're looking for those precincts where you have a bigger split, where you have logically more voters who have voted for Republican candidates in these statewide races, but voted with the progressive position on the pro-abortion rights position on the ballot measure or pro-cannabis and really zeroing in on, well, what are the type of voters? What are the demographic profiles of these voters who are ticket splitting? Because for Democrats to win in Ohio, as the state has, at least from a, a partisan performance, veered to the right over the last decade or so, those are the voters that you're most likely to win back um, at that point. It's if, if someone's not with us on abortion rights, they're not with us on issues like cannabis. The odds, it's not that we can't pull any of those voters back, but they're much less likely. So that's one level of analysis. And then really what that leads to is individual level statistical models where every voter is applied a probabilistic score saying the probability that this is a ticket splitter voter, someone who's with us on the issues, but hasn't voted with us in these partisan races. And it really speaks to something that I was talking about at the beginning of this conversation, which is the challenge for Democrats is how do you draw that sort of organizing and persuasive power that we've experienced post-Dobbs with abortion rights issue and turn that into performance and persuasive power in candidate races. You know, you saw J.D. Vance come out in Ohio, the senator, Republican senator come out the day after the vote there. And basically just admit that the voters aren't with them. They need to do some soul searching on the issue, but then said, you, you know, we should, we should look at federal action on this. <laughs> and in my mind, you know, that's something that Democrats will really need to put in the forefront because the, to the extent that we saw this dynamic where voters in New York and in California didn't really come out in 2022 post Dobbs presumably because they didn't feel like abortion rights were at risk in their states because let's face it, they they weren't in the short term. Mm-hmm. Well, the one way that you put abortion figuratively on the ballot in those states is a federal 
abortion ban. So I think that will be something to watch for. And so to your question about tactically, how will we be working with campaigns? We have the ability to identify those voters who have not been with us in the partisan races, but are with us on the issues. And then we just have to communicate effectively that these are the stakes, that if you're voting for these Republican candidates in these races, you are effectively voting for abortion bans. And maybe Republicans will do for us what Governor Yunkin did in Virginia and go out and just say it, which is what they actually plan to do. Yeah, I mean, I'm all for Republicans being honest with how they're actually going to govern and tell us all the things they'd like to pass, because I don't think that would be very popular with the public. No. Well, Donald Trump was pretty honest uh, this week when he talked about reversing Obamacare. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I didn't see a lot of Republicans wanting to talk about that no. on, on the Hill today. No. Tom, thank you so much for joining us. Always incredibly informative when we have you on. Uh, where can people follow you and, and hear more from you? Uh, I'm on all the the different social media platforms. I know there are so many. I'm still on Twitter, X, whatever, T-Bonier, T-B-O-N-I-E-R, though every day I feel less good about being there, <laughs> just trying to, uh, you know, to the extent that I can get um, more of, of, of the folks who follow me there over to places like Threads, um, trying to be a little bit more active there, always trying to share analysis and these sort of little nuggets in terms of what we're seeing in the data. So any one of those platforms, I'll, I'll, I'll be there in one way or another. Great. Well, thanks again for joining us. Thank you. That's all from us this week. Thanks to Jeff Singer and Tom Bonier for joining us. The Down Ballot comes out every Thursday, everywhere you listen to podcasts. You can reach out to us by emailing thedownballot at dailycoast.com. If you haven't already, please subscribe to The Down Ballot on Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review. Thanks to our editor, Trevor Jones, and we'll be back next week with a new episode. 